You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to plan the travel experiences you'll have once you arrive. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, excursions, and more in one place. There are over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from, so you can find something for everyone. And Viator offers free cancellation and 24-7 customer support for worry-free travel. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. With your host, Andrew Donaldson, this is Herd Tell. Ah, uh, welcome back to Herd Tell. Okay, let's go back over to the UK because there's nothing major going on over there lately, if you even tangentially look at the headlines, but uh, important topic. I'm looking forward to this new face from our UK contributor. Sophia Warringer is joining us from the UK. How are you, ma'am? Thank you so much for the time. Thanks so much for having me on. Great to be here. I appreciate you. Another one of our great young voices contributor uh, also does some other things in her own right. We'll get to that in just a little bit. Well-traveled too. Always appreciate that. You wrote a piece about the queen and I know people are like, well, why are we still talking about the queen? I want to set it up this way to you though. Because when I talk to people that work in and around Parliament, when I talk to our UK friends while that was all going on, yes, to the American audience, yes, it's mostly ceremonial. Yes, it's, you know, there's not really political power there. But when I talk to the people that actually work around, the, the constant of the Queen, the steadiness, the fact that she is the titular head of state, that was a real thing to Parliament. It was a stabilizing force in some ways. She dies. We have total chaos. It's not all just because of that, because it's economics and other things. Is there a little element here like this may not be as chaotic and as vitriolic as it was if the queen was still there? Because everybody I talked to said that stabilization thing was a very real thing. I think you're right in some ways. I think the queen's constant presence over most of the last century now um, and 70 years on the throne was definitely a stabilizing presence in parliament. Obviously, she would open it every new parliamentary session uh, she only missed two or three i think when she was very ill or heavily pregnant and she was therefore a constant presence and i think also a national focus of identity of direction of ceremony and tradition and although her successor um, king charles embodies much of that his presence on the scene hasn't been quite as constant and so therefore i do feel like we have maybe lost some of that reassurance and, and steady hands and i think um, as a national figurehead, she was incredibly unifying and she would not get involved in the nitty gritty of politics. She would not comment on on political day to day activities and her unifying presence will definitely be missed. And maybe there can be links drawn to the economic uh, turmoil we see ourselves now in. But it may have to have more hindsight to exactly express how those things are connected. Yeah, Sophia Warren, you're joining us. I think it's one of those passive things, though, of when you have somebody that's that revered and that respected and that beloved. I think there was something to it of just, well, you don't want to ever embarrass or or let somebody like that down. It's a passive thing. It's not like something that's talked about. You don't get a memo at the beginning of parliament sessions like don't embarrass the queen. It's just understood that 
hey, you know, when we do stuff, you know, don't embarrass the queen, don't embarrass the country. There's an element of that that we are losing in societies. We're losing it in America, certainly. That kind of institutional thing. The British are kind of, you know, y'all got that stereotype, stiff upper lip, carry on, you got the t-shirts, all that stuff. Is there a concern some of that might be a little bit slipping here that we're maybe decorum's kind of becoming an issue a little bit? I do think the UK public showed that extent of their love and devotion to the Queen and the outpouring of grief following her death. And obviously the eyes of the world turned to Westminster as the funeral was broadcast. And I think people were quite surprised maybe about how emotional they became upon hearing the Queen had died. People who had never met her, um, people who had never even seen her. And I think there was something about that collective experience of loss in the country uh, that has probably disorientated a lot of people over the last few weeks and caused people to be anxious about the future, to question what is Britain's place in the world. And I think the combination of changing head of state and changing government, changing prime minister happening all very quickly after a very um, kind of tumultuous few years in politics anyway, has definitely had an impact on the national psyche and has left many people feeling rudderless. So it's very important now that the, the king and the government in whatever form that takes puts emphasis on unity and moving forward and forging a new path for Britain. We can't replicate the Queen. King Charles cannot be his mother, but he can forge his own path. And it's really important that he does that. Yeah, we'll talk about the political turmoil a little bit more in a minute, but y'all need some unity right now. And you're probably going to have some dark days before you get back to it. Let's talk about the Queen for a minute, because you were writing about it. You wrote about American Thinker. We'll link, read the whole piece. She also has a bunch of links inside the piece. You want to make sure you read through those too. When you're somebody like the Queen and you've been on the throne for 70 years and you have movies about you and you have prestige TV series about, you can't help but be a stereotype. We talk about it being marbleization, you know, the famous figures, they got their statue and you never get to the actual person underneath that. But you wrote about this. You wrote about this. That person, the stereotypes didn't always hold up. You know, they talk about her being very traditional, maybe not being, you know, progressively feminist. But she also had a husband who famously, you touch on it in the piece, always walked two paces behind her. Like, you know, some of the stereotypes do match up. Some of them don't. Walk us through a couple of those that you pointed out in your piece. So I think what's really interesting is the Queen was both very traditional and yet also very reforming. So I've talked about the changes she made to the Crown um, succession of the Crown Act in 2013, which undid hundreds, if not thousands of years of male preference primogenitor where the line of the throne succession passed to the eldest male. She undid that so that any child of Prince William, who is now Prince of Wales, would be equally in line to the throne, whether they were born a boy or a girl. And that's actually very radical, particularly when you think of all of the disputes in history about not producing male heirs and all of the ways our country's history is shaped by this male preference primogenitor in the past. And she quietly undid that. And I think showed in that her very radical reforming agenda, but always in step with honouring tradition. And I think, therefore, some of the accolades around her calling her a feminist are correct in that she did believe in equality and at the heart of feminism that is what is believed but not in the way modern liberal feminists often discuss feminism which blurs the distinction of 
maleness and femaleness and gender. And I think actually the Queen, as well as being reforming in some ways, was very proud of being a female ruler and proud of her femininity. And so therefore stuck to more conservative um, values of her role and understood her role to be to be very uh, one of protecting institutions and conserving institutions. So in both hands, she was both conservative and reforming. And I think she bridged that gap very well and walked that path very smoothly. Without the ones like you, who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop. Hospitals, factories, schools, and power plants, they all depend on you. No matter the weather, emergency, or time of day, you're the ones who get it done. At Granger, we're here for you, with professional-grade industrial supplies. Count on real-time product availability and fast delivery. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. That's Sophia Warner joining us from over in the UK. Part of this is a perception issue because, you know, everybody's like, well, she was a very traditional woman. Well, by 1950 standards, she's pretty progressive. By 20, you know, 2022 standards, she's super conservative. How much of it is her own evolution? She reigned for so long that she spanned different eras. But she wasn't the same either, and not just because of age. She changed over time, too. It was more subtle. It was more on the down low. Get us past the media perception, because I think when you look at it that way, it will change how we view her as a person first that, hey, when she came to the throne, unexpectedly, by the way, people forget that part of it. She wasn't expecting to be queen when she was. It kind of got thrust upon her. There was a lot of change, even though it was subtle. And by the standards of her time throughout her lifetime, massive change and massive ways that not only the royalty and the royal family, but the way she presented and represented her country changed as well. Absolutely. She she did in some ways represent this conservatism, this tradition, but as I've mentioned, evolved into her role and saw the monarchy as involving evolving with her, I believe. And I think what is interesting is that the modern liberal feminist movement actually seeks in some ways to be more conservative, more traditional, more um, regressive than it portrays itself to be. So I mentioned in my piece the decisions to portray Joan of Arc and to understand Elizabeth I as a gender neutral, non-binary character. And I think actually those expectations actually put what it means to be a woman into a smaller box than the queen allowed it to be put into. So those interpretations look back at strong female leaders in history and see that they displayed characteristics which were for that time unusual, such as having a female head of state in the case of Elizabeth I and having someone address an army in her case army going to defeat the Spanish Armada or Joan of Arc who led 
wear men's clothes, she led an army, she went to speak to the king, all of those characteristics. Modern liberal feminists are in danger of looking back at people uh, like them and deciding that because they displayed these strong characteristics of leadership and courage and decisive strategy, they could not possibly be female, hence the decision to portray them as gender neutral or non-binary. And yet the queen, Queen Elizabeth II, actually was more comfortable in her femininity than that their definitions allow. So she was very comfortable, obviously, in her finery, in the crown jewels, in her, her dresses and fur and feathers, but more maybe comfortable in her country clothes, rolling around in the mud, stalking deer around Balmoral, right? And we need to be very careful that we don't define leadership only through male categories. And she was able to decide that she was a leader and she was strong and she she was female. She didn't want to minimize that, but she was very comfortable with the definition of female extending to full military dress or deer stalking or all these different types of things, which modern liberal feminists are in danger of categorizing only as male. So I think in that sense, she was incredibly progressive. And I think therefore the modern liberal feminist movement is actually and ironically in danger of becoming more aggressive. I know that's not their intention, but with their narrow definitions of gender, they are in danger of that. And that's why it's so interesting. Yeah, Sophia Warren, you're joining us. You have a great antidote in here is something of a little bit of a lighter note because it's a heavy topic. Uh, it was jarring to the American audience and the international audience when you saw Princess Anne in the funeral procession in uniform, which kind of surprised some folks. And then there's, of course, the controversy that, you know, Harry couldn't wear his, but we're not we'll deal with that some other time. Well, you have a great little antidote about Princess Anne having kind of a, and she was she was basically the caretaker of the Queen. She was the Queen's right hand. She spent more time with her than anybody else. She was with her every day, especially in the last few years with the health stuff. She was basically the caretaker for all practical purposes for folks that don't know. But Princess Anne had that same kind of high-minded, you know, I'm here, I'm doing my job, that kind of day-to-day -day bravery stuff. But you had an interesting little antidote about the time they actually tried to kidnap her and it did not go well for that guy. Yeah, exactly. So the princess, royal princess Anne, uh, is the only daughter of the queen, and she's known for her no-nonsense approach. And there was an attempt to kidnap her from when she was driving in a car, and the person who attempted that got into the car, and she told them to go away, basically, very bluntly, told them that they were a silly man and that they should go away. She took no uh, hostages at all. She was very clear what she wanted. And I think that has... Um, shows something of, of the Queen as well, because their relationship was so close. It was the Queen's wishes that Princess Royal would uh, follow the coffin from Balmoral um, to Aberdeen, where it was flown to London. And she did that whole six hour journey in the car behind the coffin. And what is actually really interesting, too, is I saw the hearse and the coffin leave from London, Westminster, to go to Windsor, which is the outskirts of London, and it came near my house and the rest of the royal family were ahead of the coffin in their cars and then the coffin came and then the princess royal princess Anne followed the coffin in a separate car and I do think that shows something of the closeness of the relationship between the princess royal and her late mother and that would have been a request of the queen so the no-nonsense attitude that we see in the princess royal I think she learned um, definitely from her late mother and we can understand more about the queen by understanding more about princess anne 
Yeah, so fair learned you. There was nothing in that funeral that wasn't planned out and approved down to the smallest detail. So, yeah, stuff like that was absolutely not accidental. Uh, let's come back to the present day. The queen is gone. We had the respite from UK politics. We had the great, you know, 10 days or so of national unity. Boy, howdy, that went away real, real fast. There's an economic crisis. There's a cost of living crisis. There's migrant crises. There's all kinds of crises. Let's just be blunt. There's a leadership crisis in the UK right now. I know Liz Truss came in with a really hard hand. It looks like it's going even worse than people feared it might. There's a leadership crisis in the UK right now. This is why I opened up with, you know, even though she's not technically have political power, just having that steady and influence might be really missed right now. What's the state, you know, just common folks on the street? What are obviously you follow politics maybe more closely, but what do people think? Because the average person that doesn't follow policy and economics and politics, I got to imagine they're just looking at that and going, this is one hot mess of not good. I think the public have now a fairly short fuse for political politics. Obviously, the summer was taken up by a very insular leadership race where only MPs and then only members of the Conservative Party could vote. And therefore, most of the public looking on felt excluded from that and didn't have much patience for all of the briefing and uh, counter-briefing that was going on during that race. And they, But they were willing to put up with that because they felt like stability would be delivered at the end and there would be a leader that would take them forward into this new chapter. And I think the Prime Minister now needs to be incredibly clear with the public about her direction. If she wants to completely uh, continue to pursue this direction of tax cutting and growth, which obviously the UK needs. The new UK does need growth after we recover from the pandemic. That is very important. She needs to be clear in her communication. And I think the problem has been is that she has moved too quickly for the public to keep up. And at the end of the day, people are going to look at the money that's in their pockets, right? They're going to look at their mortgage rates, which are going to be fixed two or three or five years at a very high rate they're going to look at how much money they have left over at the end of the month once they've paid their energy bills and so i think economic fiscal responsibility is incredibly important but even more important than that is the communication of the policies the communication of the policies of where the country is going and the direction and vision for the country and i think that's what's been lacking over this tumultuous period is that the country has not been taken on the journey of why these cuts or growth um have, have, is important and therefore there's been a disconnect between the policies and the communications and therefore people feel very confused very in the dark and those most of the people in the UK rightly so are not in the Westminster bubble they don't read the newspapers every day in incredible detail they will just look at the headlines and so it's very important that the government communicates very clearly and very top line as what's going on so the people can go on this journey with them. Yeah, Sophia Warren, you're joining us from the UK. Um, if this turns into a longer term economic crisis, let's say past next year, past one or two elections, we're going to get we're going to probably wind up with a general election sooner rather than later somewhere in here. If this turns into a multi-year recession, God forbid, or this this just doesn't seem like it's going to end. Does this go from just being a political crisis to being a transformational moment for the UK? Because it kind of is starting to feel like people are not just questioning leadership they're starting to question the parties they're starting to question the structure the uk's role in the world is evolving the demographics of the uk are changing there's a lot of things moving at once in the uk right now 
does this feel like something that this may be a crisis that goes beyond just solving the crisis of the moment? This might be a generational change type of moment. I think so, because I think the death of the Queen was always going to be a seminal moment in UK identity and understanding of belonging, direction and national pride. And I think now that that has happened, we are left with this landscape, which is fairly unshaped of who we are on the global stage. What is our role? What does it mean to be British? What are British values? And I think following, obviously, from the Brexit vote, there are still quite severe divides between various people and geographical entities in the UK and I think therefore we are at a crossroads as to who we are and what we stand for and I think there's been very quick cultural change as well in the UK if you think in comparison to America for example we are a very small population and we've had very big demographic shifts we've had cultural and value shifts that have been almost over less than a decade very quickly uh, changed. And I think our sense of unity has not kept up with the sense of change. And so therefore we are definitely at a crossroads and it's important therefore that we tap back into what it is to be British and what holds us together and really focus on that. Yeah, Sophia and Warren, your crisis always reveals. So it'll be interesting to see what uh, our UK friends come out the other side of this crisis looking like. And uh, we do hope our special relationship continues because we sure do enjoy our friendship with y'all. Appreciate the conversation. Love talking about this stuff. Appreciate your insight. Till we get you back on the show in the future, though, let folks know where they can follow you, what you have going on and how they can keep up with you until we get you back on Hertel again. Thanks, Andrew. Yeah, so you can follow me on Twitter at Sophia Warringer. I'm working at a think tank called the Centre for Social Justice, looking at routes in and out of poverty in the mid-2020s. So you can follow the work of the Centre for Social Justice online too. Yep, and we'll link to her page, uh, Young Voices, and also her social media. Uh, you're going to have plenty of business on that poverty thing because it looks like it's going to be tough economic times for the foreseeable future, so good luck with that. Thank you so much for the conversation and the time. Sophia Warringer, thank you very much, ma'am. Save big on Brunch for Mom, all in the Kroger app. Get 16-ounce packs of flavorful Angus 90% Lean Ground Sirloin for $4.99 each with a digital coupon. Then buy two, get two free on 12 packs of delicious Coca-Cola, Pepsi, or 7-Up, all with your card. Shop these deals at your local Kroger, less than five miles away. Or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details.